0: Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day, uh, this day that even after Jesus was crucified, he rested on this Sabbath day, on a Sabbath day showing its importance, showing that it is still uh, the heart of God's law. And so we come together on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for creating a day. You didn't have to do it. But you did create a day that you could spend with us, and you want us to keep it holy. So we pray, Father, at this time for the Holy Spirit to be given to us. Uh, Help us, Lord, to keep looking up and uh, keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus so that we may keep this day holy and bring glory to thy name. Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us as we study uh, your word here this morning. We pray for enlightenment. We pray for discernment. Help us to have understanding. As we look at this sin issue and how we are to react uh to and specifically to a a church that's in sin, so Father, we pray this morning that you will give us uh wisdom and above all a love for the truth and a love for each other, uh, so that we may be seen as the disciples of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you will forgive us our sins we Uh, Claim the blood that Jesus shed there at Calvary for us. And we are so thankful that you love us that much. It's just a a love that we can't fully comprehend. That you would give your only son to die for us. uh, Those who deserve death. So we thank you so very, very much for that. And Father, we pray that you be very near to those who couldn't be with us today. Those who are ill. Those who are mourning uh, the loss of loved ones. We pray that you be very near the Newcomb family. And, uh, Lord, help us uh, to press together. It's the time we see we're living in. Jesus is soon to come. We wish to be ready for that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen <clears throat> and amen. Well, friends, in part one, we started to consider, and, and I'll say part one of the, the the study that I entitled Our Reaction to a Church in Sin, and this is part two. Um, uh, what is our reaction to be to a church in sin? And in part one, we started to consider what our reaction should be to a church in sin, but more specifically, what if the church you belong to is in sin, uh, locally or denominationally? Now, um, we have specifically looked at the principle of corporate sin, you know, earlier in this series, but we didn't delve deeply into what our reaction should be uh, uh, towards that church that is corporately in sin. And as you, uh, many of you who, who have uh, come together with us in, in study and, and worship, you've heard me say this before. Uh, there are only two spirits in the world that we live in right now, friends. There are only two the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. And so, with only two spirits, there are only two churches. And we studied that out in our our series about uh, uh, who and what the church is. Now, the Bible declares that God has one church, we found. The original church, the, the eternal church, of which Jesus is the head. It also defines the church of Antichrist, which originated with sin And the Bible says that's a temporary church. Its time is short compared to eternity. And uh, we are living in a day where it's shorter than ever. So we need to be prepared. But who is the head of that Antichrist church? Well, the head is Satan. And so, you know, there's only two spirits in this world. We're talking about the sin issue. It's a battle that's waging between the forces of good and the forces of evil. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, he said, for everyone that doeth evil, now notice this, because this this goes clear back to the Garden of Eden. Remember in Genesis 3.15, God said he's going to put enmity between that serpent and the woman, right? And here Jesus says, for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Now, I want you to think deeply about this as we talk about this subject today. Why do they hate the light? Because the light reproves their evil. Verse 21, but he that doeth truth, what's he do? Jesus said, he comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And so we have the conflict of the ages between Christ and Satan. And and when righteousness, by its very presence, and if you study the Gospels and you see the life of Jesus, you saw this in his reaction uh, to the church at that time, and specifically their reaction to him just by his life. Okay, So when righteousness, by its very presence exposes unrighteousness. That's what it does. Just by being there, it exposes it. Or, let's say the righteous, those who are in obedience to God and His commandments, they point out sin. Well, friends, there is a great conflict then between the two churches that will be seen. This is what Jesus was saying in John 3 there. And there will be a conflict between those churches and their members. For everyone that doeth evil, remember, Jesus said... Hateth the light. And let me tell you, when the Holy Spirit leads you to point out a church in sin, don't think there's not going to be a reaction to that. And by the way, that is a a part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin. And so uh, um, when when you the Holy Spirit leads you to point out a church in sin and they don't repent. Let me tell you something, you will be escorted out of that church membership, one way or another, uh, by that organization at some time. They're going to do something to it. Because remember, Jesus said what? He said, the ones that doeth evil hateth the light. So there's going to be a conflict. And it was because of uh, his righteous character that the church at Christ's time sought his death. And why did they do it? it? Because his life exposed their sin. And like I said before, we can see this same reaction uh, from a fallen church depicted all throughout Bible history. And in part one, we, we began looking at a great example uh, of this in the lives of the anointed kings, Saul and David. And we can see a parallel in the experience of King Saul and David, and that of the professed church of God, and the true church of God, and the attitudes of both. In the life of King Saul and that of David, we see the principles that we've been learning in this series in regards to a church in sin, and the reaction by it, and the reaction to it. And let me tell you something. In most cases, when this this is talked about, uh. Um, you know, the the, the parallels with David and Saul, uh, more time is actually spent showing how Saul behaved toward David than David toward Saul. (laughs) But, But we can learn a lot by looking at David's reactions towards Saul and how the true church should react toward the professed church. What always starts the process, friends, of apostasy... Uh, is when sin is not dealt with, as the Lord says it should be. And that little leaven, then, pervades the entire church. You can't stand neutral. You, you're you going to be making a choice. Uh, you know, uh, you heard, heard the old saying, by not making a choice, you've made a choice, right? Uh, there are no neutral grounds. In fact, uh, you've heard me, I've read the quote before, you know, one thing God hates is being neutral in a religious crisis. It, you know, you, you're making a choice one way or the other. Jesus said, if you're not f- with me, you're against me. See, And so, this is what, how apostasy begins. Sin is not dealt with within the camp. And it was when Israel departed from God's law that they were then led by the great deceiver step by step into apostasy. To the point where they actually charged God with the evils that were the result of their own sins. Israel rejected God as their leader. And we looked at this in part one. And what they did, they called to have a king over them. A king like that of the kings of the world. Now what a terrible exchange that is. But that's what sin does, see. Those who do evil hate the light, as Jesus said. And any time you move away from God, you move closer to self, which leads to sin. And this is why we see such examples of sin and apostasy repeated over and over throughout the Bible. It is the same fruit of self and sin played out over and over again. The people departed from God's law. They then sinned more and more. Then they blamed God for their sins, and and actually the results of their sins, and wanted a new king, not a heavenly king. And it is this same course with sin every time, whether you look at individuals in sin, whether you look at churches in sin, or nations in sin, in fact, even in worlds in sin. Well, we're the only world in sin, aren't we? So Israel departed from the law of God, and then became unhappy being a part of the government of God, which you could say they were unhappy being a part of his church, And they no longer wished to be members. They wanted to be a member of a new organization that had a different leader. And what happens to a church when it departs from God's law? Well, this is the question, isn't it? Is it still God's church? Well, if in time it does not repent, what what have we learned? God leaves them and then it ceases to be his church. It becomes a new organization that is void of the law of God, and then what happens? The members choose a new king, a new head, and just who would that head be? You know, there's only two spirits in the world. There's only two churches. Now, this new organization will profess to be God's church. It will profess to have His law. You know, It will profess... To have the writings of the prophets, you know, the name, the schools, the hospitals, publishing houses, missions, and on and on and on. But if God is not present, it is not God's church. And without God, as Jesus said, it's nothing but a whited sepulcher full of dead men's bones. This is why It's so important to understand the three angels' messages of Revelation 14 and the call to come out of the fallen church. And so, how Saul, we get back to this, (laughs) how Saul reacts toward David is a parallel at how the professed church, a fallen church, reacts toward the true church and its members, as we can see. Uh, I shared this last time. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 636. When Saul chose to act independently of God, now, now, who chose to do what? This is something that people can uh, misunderstand, misconstrue. We leave God because of our choices and the sin that we get into. And this was what Saul did, see. God is always striving with our hearts, because he loves us. And so here, she says, when Saul chose to act independently of God, the Lord could no longer be his guide and was forced to set him aside. What happened? Wasn't Saul anointed? Yeah. Isn't Saul the apple of God's eye? He was at one time. But what happened? Saul chose to act independently of God. And the Lord could no longer be his guide, and he was forced to set him aside. Then he called to the throne a man after his own heart, not one who was faultless in character. You know, people kind of think, well, you've got to be uh, have perfection right away. That doesn't happen. He says, she says here, that he called to the throne a man after his own heart, not one who was faultless in character. Praise God for that. It gives us hope, doesn't it, friends? but who instead of trusting to himself would rely upon God and be guided by his spirit, who when he sinned would submit to reproof and correction. This principle of of setting aside those who have chosen to be independent of God it has been seen throughout the history of God's people, friends, from the beginning of time to this day. In fact, the record is so clear it's just remarkable to me. It's so clear. It is amazing that it is so easily brushed aside by so many. But that just shows you know, the um, infatuating power of sin and self-deception. Let's look at this again, this principle. From the book, The Upward Look, page 131. The Lord Jesus will always have a chosen people to serve him. When the Jewish people rejected Christ, what happened? Did God reject them first? No. When the Jewish people rejected Christ, the Prince of Life, he took from them the kingdom of God and gave it unto the Gentiles. Notice what she says. God will continue to work on this principle with every branch of his work. Every means every, doesn't it? (laughs) Notice this. She says, When a church proves unfaithful to the word of the Lord, whatever their position may be. That's a strong statement right there. Whatever their position may be. God is no respecter of persons, friends. However high and sacred their calling, the Lord can no longer work with them. Why? Because they have proved unfaithful to the word of the Lord. Notice this, she says, Others then are then chosen to bear important responsibilities. But, if these in turn do not purify their lives from every wrong action, if they do not establish pure and holy principles in all their borders, then the Lord will grievously afflict them, afflict and humble them, and unless they repent. You see how hard the Lord works on our hearts, friends? He wants to bring us to repentance. Bring us close to Him. Sin and God can't be together. God destroys it. It can't be in his presence. So it's got to be taken care of. It has to be rid from us so that we can be closer to him. And she says, unless they repent, he will remove them from their place and make them a reproach. This is a principle here. The way the Lord dealt with the apostasy of Saul is a lesson for us to learn on how he deals with the apostasy of his professed church. While it's true that the professed church was at one time anointed of God, when it reaches the point of apostasy, it then is no longer the apple of his eye, friends. And for sure, unless there's repentance, as we just read, they will never go through to the kingdom. We're talking about sin. Sin (coughs) will not be in the kingdom of God. And this kind of blind faith of, oh yeah, it's going through no matter what, is not what God requires of us as a people. Let me ask you something. Did Saul go through no matter what he did? No, he did not. But, Pastor, Saul was chosen. He was anointed by God. Surely God could never remove him. The Bible tells us he was set aside though outwardly Saul appeared to still be the anointed leader of Israel. Friends, can you see the parallel here between the professed church of our time and those who stand on the commandments of God and point out sin? (coughs) Saul was anointed, and yet he became corrupt. So God set Saul aside and chose another to bear important responsibilities. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We want to look at who this other person, the, the, the one after God's own heart, who it was. First Samuel 16, begin with verse 11. And Samuel said unto Jesse, <clears throat> Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and withal a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Notice what happened here. Samuel anointed who? David. What happened? The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. It went on to David, departed from Saul. And it says, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Saul had rejected the Spirit of God, and there was nothing more God could do for him as king of Israel. It was not that the the Spirit withdrew from Saul arbitrarily, friends but rather that Saul rebelled against his guidance and deliberately withdrew himself from the influence of the Spirit. That's what I've been saying. We remove ourselves from God by our choices to disobey. Saul's rejection as king, um, it didn't necessarily imply that his personal probation had closed and that God uh, would refuse to accept him as an individual. He might yet Uh, repent personally and be converted. You know, had Saul been willing at this time to relinquish the throne and to live as a private individual, he might have found salvation. But it was clear that he could not use the office of king in harmony with God's will. See, Likewise, in our parallel, probation hasn't closed yet on the professed church. They can still corporately repent and come back into the true church of Christ and have salvation, but as it is right now, and as we'll see in the parallel with the life of David, um, those who are the true must separate from the professed until there is repentance. If there is repentance, see. I get some people say, "Well, I, I want to. I'm staying in." You know, this fallen church, so I can reach these people. Well, that's not what God asks you to do. It's uh, part of the devil's uh, teaching of, you know, a grand exception. I'll get into that in a minute. <clears throat> but to stay within a fallen church, a church in apostasy, endangers your spiritual life, and thus your eternal life, friends, and that of your children, that of your families, and, and uh Those who are under your influence. Now, how did Saul behave toward David, the newly anointed of the Lord? Well, his reaction toward David parallels the reaction of the professed church towards the true church. You know, for a long time, Saul was unaware that David had been anointed. So how did he act toward David during that time? Well, at first he loved David because of what David did for him in, uh, in this particular case. David played music to soothe Saul's conscience. You look at First Samuel 16, verses 21 to 23. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And this is talking about Saul loved David. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. There are many today, beloved, who have left the direct fellowship of the professed church, but who are accepted by the professed church because of what these brethren do for them. (laughs) I've got something going on there. But, that you know, it's what's in it for me kind of an attitude. There are independent ministries and churches that send their tithes and offerings to the professed church, even though they don't fellowship with them. Uh, They send their kids to their schools, their, their proselytes to their more you know, quote, conservative churches. Uh, they're members to the meetings of, oh, you know, the famous celebrity ministers, you know, just on and on. You see, they believe that once anointed of the Lord, you know, always anointed, you see. And uh, I often refer to this as the grand exception because they believe that God is so loving towards the church that He had anointed that He will ignore their sins. And so they're the, they're the, the exception. Uh, but you can't find God giving any exception to sin anywhere in the Bible, friends. You can't find it. In fact, I'll tell you this, and I want to say this reverently, but I'm very serious. If you find it somewhere in the Bible, this grand exception, I would no longer believe that God is who he says he is. God could have overlooked Satan's original sin then, you see. The first grand exception, you could say. And Jesus would not have had to die. But you'll not find this taught anywhere in God's Word. You know how I know? How I can be so confident of that? All we have to do is look at the cross at Calvary, friends. Jesus did die. There is no grand exception for sin by any individual, by a church or a nation, or a world for that matter. This kind of thinking and teaching only confuses people about the principles of God and how we are to deal with sin. It's a grand deception. But that doesn't hurt the professed church, you see, because they don't care much about sin. But it does hurt those who are deceived into thinking the professed church is the true church because they'll, they will be held to the sins of that church to whom they belong, that corporate sin, it actually encourages compromise with sin. And, and, and in all actuality, uh, it does away with any need to call people out of apostasy. <laughs> For how can I call someone out of Babylon when I will not remove myself from apostasy because we are the exception to God's sin, God's law, right? We're the exception, the grand exception. Oh, he dealt differently with everybody else, but not us, because we're the apple of his eye. I'll tell you, friends, that there are many who are coming out of Babylon And into the professed church thinking it's the true only to find that they've been deceived and they're still in Babylon. Like I've said, it's basically just switching organizations within the same Antichrist church. Jumping out of one frying pan into another. But of course, we're the true church and yours isn't, so you you can go ahead and jump, right? (laughs) Trust us. You know, trust us, it's better to keep your, your eyes though, friends, I'll tell you, on Jesus and be alone than surrounded by professed believers and on the road to perdition. Wouldn't you agree with that? Now, back to Saul David, no time interval is given between the announcement uh, of God's choice of another man to replace the king, but Saul would certainly be on the watch for signs of the person who was to succeed him, he knew. Just as Saul was on watch, the professed church is always looking for what they they call an offshoot, so they can either bribe them or coerce them or or threaten or dismiss them in some way so as not to hurt their bottom line because they're big business now, and they depend on ties and offerings and membership, not on truth <clears throat> and so they treat independence or those outside, as the prophet says, the regular lines, uh, suspiciously, to see if they can be controlled by the denomination or not, you see. And if not, then they will attack in some way. Reminds me of what Jesus said to John in Luke chapter 9, verses 49 and 50. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. Isn't that interesting? See the attitude there? And and what did Jesus say? What did he say to John? Look at verse 50. Jesus said unto him, forbid him not. That's strong, isn't it? Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. You see the attitude though? We're the only organization that can do anything for God. Anybody else doing it outside our jurisdiction cannot be from God, right? So we see even John wanted to stop those who were doing the work of the Lord outside the regular lines. But Jesus told John to leave them alone. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's a well-known story of David and Goliath. And this is where we begin to see the dividing line between the professed church and the true church coming out. The Philistines had arrayed their army on one mountain, and Israel were on another mountain across from them. Um, It was a good distance, really, but they could see each other. Uh, And there was a valley between, between them. And this valley was called Elah. There's the Valley of Elah, and it had a ravine that was basically was a washout stream during rainy seasons, and this is where David got the ammunition for his sling. You see, when he fought Goliath, but before 40 days, Goliath would come out to taunt Israel to send a warrior to fight him, and for 40 days, Israel trembled in fear, refusing the challenge of Goliath. Well, then, you know, David shows up. His uh, father had sent David to uh, check up on his brothers who were arrayed there in the the armies of Israel and to send them some food. And and so David shows up to check on his brothers. And it's about mid-morning when he comes in and Goliath has come out again to challenge Israel. Now remember... Saul knows that someone is to succeed him as king, but he doesn't know who. But he's keeping a watchful eye open. Saul, you know, he he should have had faith in God and destroyed the enemy of the Lord. But remember what we read in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 608. We read there that Saul had never felt the renewing power of divine grace. So he had fear in his heart, see. Now, what is David's reaction to to the response of Israel to Goliath? I mean, David hears the taunting from Goliath. He hears the grumbling of the men of Israel and sees their fear. And he's not full of fear, but instead his spirit is moved within him. His response is from one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, not from one who only professes to have God's interests at heart. Look at verse 26. 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You know, friends, history... History shows us that it is the professed church that trembles during a religious emergency, and it is the true church that always takes a faithful stand against unrighteousness. And here we see the parallel with how Saul's reaction was towards Goliath and David's reaction towards Goliath. David could scarcely hide his contempt for such a, a braggart as Goliath. I mean, even his brothers were reproaching David, And that didn't deter him. He heard the story of Goliath from many of the men there in the camp, and he spoke so earnestly about standing for God that the news was soon brought before the king. Now, how does Saul react towards David? Does he tell David to stand down? Does he say, is he disinterested in anything David has to say? Um, Or does he encourage David to go fight his battle for him? (laughs) Well, look at 1 Samuel 17, verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Here's this young man who has more courage than all of Israel that's there, and even the king. Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's a battle that the Lord would have us fight. You see? So Saul actually, uh, actually you stay this out, Saul strove to keep David from his purpose in fighting Goliath. Now isn't that a powerful parallel between the professed church and the true church? The professed church will go to great lengths, friends, to keep the true church from their purpose in following God and keeping his commandments. History attests to it. So, here we see a dividing line between the two anointed. One is full of fear and having no faith in God, but he puts on the appearance as the champion of the Lord, all the while avoiding conflict with God's enemies. The other anointed is full of faith in God, says to the Lord and the professed king, Here am I, send me. I will fight this Philistine. Not in a braggadocious way but full of the Holy Spirit. David was as cu- as uh, um, courageous as Saul was cowardly. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 645. Speaking of David, says he was fired with zeal to preserve the honor of the living God and the credit of his people. This is how the true church, friends, you look through all Bible history, this is how the true church always reacts when it comes to the honor of God. Now, I find another interesting parallel in this particular story when it comes to Saul's armor. Remember, Saul told David to use the king's armor. Remember that? Put, put on my armor. Now, David was familiar with it because he had been Saul's armor bearer. You know, So Saul says, put, put on the king's armor. Now, think about this. The armor was made by man to protect the king in battle, right? Spiritually, it represents the attempts of man to protect the church against the enemies of God. What kind of man-made armor is used today to protect the professed church? Think about this. Well, we have trademarks, we have copyrights, we have... Uh, church policies, we have church boards and committees, we have planted leaders that direct all lines of the work in the vineyard. Ellen White referred to it as kingly power. And I encourage you to do a word study on that in the Spirit of Prophecy writings uh, some Sabbath afternoon. You, it's amazing how much she wrote about it, this kingly power. And you'll find that the professed church still wants a worldly king to this day, (laughs) basically, friends. But David didn't depend upon such things for protection, and neither does the true church. They see it for what it is. He couldn't use such man-made armor as his faith was in God to provide protection from the enemy. Now, Saul's reaction to David's call to be faithful and fight Goliath was to have David be like the king, see? and wear the kingly armor, you know, follow his church manual, <laughs> follow his church policies, and, and have the regular lines under his supervision, you see? Do You see the parallels, friends? David's reaction towards Saul was to act upon the promptings of the Holy Spirit, and to follow the word of God, and not church authority. Only if the church was following God's authority. They weren't. So how are we to react to a church in sin? As Saul did toward David, or as David did toward Saul? Do we fall in line with the man-made church rules, the the men's policies, traditions, procedures, uh, or, or do we act upon the promptings of the Holy Spirit and follow the word of God and his law? And we know how this battle with the Philistines turned out. David slew Goliath. You know, Saul should have done it if he would have been faithful to God and obeyed him from a heart of love. But we see there that the Lord always provides victory, friends, if we will trust in him. David had victory. Now, I always have to ask some questions when I talk about this battle between David and Goliath. Um, And speaking of David, look at verse 40. It says, And he took his staff in his hand, and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a scrip, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew nearer to the Philistine. Now, what would you think, and we're, we're looking at symbols here, what would you think the smooth stones symbolize? You know, on one hand, there is Saul's armor, right? And on the other are... A, are a sling and smooth stones. (laughs) Quite quite the opposite, right? Well, who made the armor? Well, man did. Who made the stones? Well, God did. Who had the victory over Goliath? Man made armor or God made stones? Stones. Saul chose man-made armor, and David rejected the armor and chose the stone. That stone is the Bible tells us, is Christ. Psalms 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone which the builders refused has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Ephesians 2, verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone. One more question. Now, a lot of people contemplate that, this question. Why did David choose five stones and not just one? Some think this showed some doubt by David in God's ability to protect him. But I think it shows how prepared David always was for, for what may be ahead. David spent days and nights in the wilderness protecting flocks of sheep. And he learned that sometimes there's more than one enemy. You need to be prepared, you see David was full of faith, he wasn't uh, he didn't have any presumption, oh, I'm just going to take one stone because the Lord will give me victory. He wasn't presuming that he was acting in faith, but he was doing all that he could do. You see his faith helped him to be fully prepared or as prepared as he could be uh, for what lay ahead of him, and the Lord wants us to use. The principles that he has shared in his word to prepare ourselves, friends, for the battles that may lie ahead for us. Now it's true that the Bible speaks about four other giants <laughs> uh, from the area of Gath, uh, one of which for sure was Goliath's brother. and the legend is that, that David took five stones, one for each of the giants, you know, but that that's kind of presumptuous, don't you think? <laughs> But still, you know, it may be true, it may not, we really don't know. But having faith in God will help us to gain experience during the tests of faith that will cause us to be more and more prepared for the next test. Now another parallel we see in this experience is that the true church will always fight the battle of the Lord. They love God with their entire heart. They have the Holy Spirit living within them. They will always fight the battle of the Lord, whether it's just one person, whether it's a small group or an entire denomination. Like Saul, the professed church will not fight the battles of the Lord, though they will always profess their willingness to do it. In actuality, you look at history, most times the professed church will fight against the true church who's fighting the battle of the Lord. This is why, you know, we see in recent history, you know, trademark and copyright lawsuits from the professed church against the truth. Now, when David defeated Goliath in the name of the Lord, Saul then suspected that David was his replacement. And so, how did Saul now react towards David, and more importantly, as we're looking at, how did David react towards Saul how is the true church to react toward the professed church? What is our reaction to be to a church in sin? Right? <coughs> have you ever heard the expression, I'm sure you have, uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? Have you heard that expression? You know, that's how Saul now looked at David. After killing Goliath, Saul kept David very near to him, to keep an eye on him something else pretty interesting. He also thought that God's protection of David would kind of rub off on him for being in such close association with him. Look at Patriarchs and Prophets page 649. It says David was prudent and faithful and it was evident that the blessing of God was upon him, was with him. It was evident, okay? People could see it. Saul at times realized his own unfitness for the government of Israel, and he felt that the kingdom would be more secure if there could be connected with him one who received instruction from the Lord. Saul hoped also that his connection with David, notice this, would be a safeguard to himself. Since David was favored and shielded by the Lord, his presence might be a protection to Saul when he went out with him to war. Boy, I could do I could speak for an hour just on that, just on the the differences in these attitudes. This attitude I did a, a message one time called "God in a Box." Saul's actual attitude about who God is is as the Philistines. Same attitude. God is some magical power that we have in a box that we pull out when we need to battle you know, our enemies and he'll give us victory and then we put him back in the box and there's no relationship there whatsoever. It's looked at as the world sees God as, you know, a magician, as a, a, a some kind of, you know, incredible power that we can wield. David has a relationship with God. And because David loves God and obeys God, God protects David. Because God loves David. He's not showing favorites. He's he's been given permission by David to to act more in David's uh, behalf, you see. And so, it didn't take long for the king, Saul, to try to destroy the one God had chosen to take his place. God worked, as you read through, God worked mighty victories through David and the people of Israel saw him as a mighty warrior for the Lord. Songs were sung about David. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 18 verses 6 to 9. And it came to pass as they came as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played, and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? See? He's saying, what's left for David but to take the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. Kept his eye on him. You know, it was after he heard the songs favoring David uh, that he became jealous. And and you remember, he threw his javelin at David. Look at verses 10 and 11. Came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit uh, from God came upon Saul. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, God has an evil spirit. It means God had withdrawn and allowed the evil spirit to come upon Saul. (laughs) And he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand, as at other times, he played the harp, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided, notice this, and David avoided out of his presence twice. What was David's reaction towards Saul? He got out of the king's way. He didn't fight back, but he separated himself in those moments, at least to begin with. Later on, he totally removed himself from Saul. There was complete separation, you see. But David was put in that place, you know, he was there for God's reason. He was put in that place at that time by God. Uh, so that he could gain an education to be king. That's why he was so close to to Saul and stayed there. And God protected him while he was there. Notice uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 649 again. Go back to that. It was the providence of God that had connected David with Saul. David's position at court would give him a knowledge of affairs in preparation for his future greatness. It would enable him to gain the confidence of the nation. Remember David was a shepherd boy. So he had to learn some of the the, the actions of government as a, as a king, you see. The vicissitudes and hardships which befell him through the enmity of Saul would lead him to feel his dependence upon God and to put his whole trust in him and the friendship of Jonathan, for David, was also of God's providence to preserve the life of the future ruler of Israel. In all these things, God was working out his gracious purposes both for David and for the people of Israel. And friends, that's what God will do with you if you let him. God will work out his gracious purposes for you. If you love God with your whole heart and obey him, God will work it out. But Saul's hatred towards David only increased as David's devotion to God and Israel waxed great. So the professed church, um, the professed church's hatred for the true increases for the same reason. See, you remember we began this part two uh, with the scripture, what Jesus said about evil. They hate the light, see. Saul's reaction towards David, was to kill him. What was the church's reaction towards Jesus? It was to kill him. I should say the professed church. So Saul placed David. He looked for, for opportunities to kill David. He, he started by putting David at the front lines of the battles with the Philistines in the hope that he'd be killed. See? How did David react to this? David humbly fought the battles of the Lord against the Philistines. And and by that, he gained more and more victories. It's just like, you know, you look through history and see where Satan, especially during the the Dark Ages, Satan tried to kill all these Christians, but their blood became seed for even more and more Christians. Well, Saul had to reevaluate sometimes, you see just as Satan does. He tried to lay a trap for David. He promised him his daughter in marriage if he'd slay a hundred Philistines. And he hoped that David would be killed. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 25 and 27. <clears throat> and Saul said, Thus shall ye say to David, The king desireth not any dowry, but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemies. That sounds rather grotesque, doesn't it? But it was one way that they they used to prove that they had actually slain a person. I mean, if you got the foreskin of somebody, I mean, (laughs) you know. But he said, you bring me a hundred. But Saul thought, to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines verse 26 and when his servants told David these words it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law and the days were not expired that means he still had time to do this this act Wherefore David arose and went, and he and his men and slew the Philistines two hundred men. And David brought their foreskins, skins, and they gave them in full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him, Michael, his daughter, to wife. Now this is an example, this is interesting to me, this is an example of the professed church's attempt to compromise with the true church in order to have some control over them. Like allowing the the true church to use the name, oh, Seventh-day Adventist. But only on conditions, right? Only if it conforms to their particular guidelines. So, you see, they have, a, they have control, you see. So, Saul gave his daughter, and he, he could have some control over David, see. Also notice that David provided twice as many of the foreskins as was asked. The true church always goes the extra mile, friends. They always go the extra mile. Just as Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verses 40 to 42, remember? He said, If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn not thou away. It has to do with attitude, a spiritual attitude. But the time came when Saul didn't disguise his hatred toward David anymore and openly wanted him to die. 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. I better get moving here. Uh, 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. That's it now. Death decree for David. Is there going to be a death decree for God's people? The professed church will join with the world to persecute and hopefully bring to death the true church. It's remarkable, friends. I'm telling you the parallels here. But uh, how did David respond? That's what we're interested in. How did David respond to this outward show of hatred? Did he challenge Saul to a duel? You know, they're both the anointed, right? Did he take Saul to court so he could use the name Israel on his church sign and in all of his literature? No, he didn't do that. David fled or separated from the king and he sought. No, he didn't just run out into the wilderness like a chicken with his head cut off. He sought instruction from the prophet Samuel. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 653. The home of Samuel was a peaceful place in contrast with the royal palace. It was here, amid the hills, that the honored servant of the Lord continued his work. A company of seers was with him, and they studied closely the will of God. What they do? They studied closely the will of God and listened reverently to the words of instruction that fell from the lips of Samuel. Precious were the lessons that David learned from the teacher of Israel. David believed that the troops of Saul would not, notice this, David believed, she says, that the troops of Saul would not be ordered to invade this sacred place, but no place seemed to be sacred to the darkened mind of the desperate king. Notice that no place seemed to be sacred to the darkened mind of the desperate king. Friends, what what sin does, step by step into apostasy went Saul to the point to where he hated the anointed of God and no place did he hold as sacred. The professed church will reach a point too, friends, in their downward spiral, their... Where there will be seen by God, or they will be seen by God as worse than all the other apostates before them. This is why there's a second call of the, uh, uh, of the second angel's message in Revelation 18. Babylon has fallen, and so it's gotten so much worse. A terrible death spiral, spiral while professing to be God's church. But to them, no place seems to be sacred. Look what's happening today within the professed church, and you tell me, are they holding to the sacred things of God or to the worldly policies of men? Just look at the the LBGT movement and their foothold within the professed church now. It's incredible. But David sought sanctuary. And he sought God's will for him after he separated from the king. And I'll tell you, we can relate in our own experience. When we separated from denomination, we spent many a a day and night for weeks in study and prayer seeking God's will, praying that our course was the right one. And the Lord opened our eyes to His truth and we found that our reaction to the condition of the church um, biblically was correct. Complete separation from sin and apostasy is what you find in the Bible, friends. Our reaction to The former brethren, we also learned, was to be like David's reaction. And as you go through the books of Samuel, you see that David's response was to flee and not retaliate towards the anointed king, even though David himself was also anointed. In all this, David still fought the battles of the Lord for Israel, even while he was separated and he was fleeing. He was separated from the kingdom and yet fought for the Lord. He didn't get mixed up in what all the professed church was doing and wishing he could go back in. No, he continued to fight the Lord's battles. Like Saul, the professed church is consumed with finding out who are members of the true church in order to persecute them for daring to go against proper church order and and, and standing for the faith once delivered to the saints. You know. They're mixed up in the head. They don't have the right spirit. They'll threaten to sue any who dare give the three angels messages and call themselves a the Seventh-day Adventist outside of their authority. They put more effort into that than they do in fighting the enemies of the Lord. It's remarkable. And you see this parallel all throughout the Bible. It's the true church. Those who are keeping the commandments and have the faith of Jesus, they continue to fight the battles against the enemy while fleeing from the wrath of the professed church. And this, like I said, this is seen throughout the Bible history, not just here in the example of Saul and David. Uh, one time David and his men <clears throat> were hiding in a cave. You know, and Saul, when they were fleeing from Saul and hiding from Saul, and Saul was searching to destroy him, and Saul came into the cave. And he came into the cave basically to use the bathroom. And while he was there, David you know, snuck up and he cut off a piece of the king's tunic. But I want you to notice how David even felt about doing that. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 4 to 6. And the men of David said unto him, Behold the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Here he is. Saul's all by himself, comes into the cave full of has David and all his men in there. David could have killed him, taken the throne that had been it. And this is what David's men are telling him. The Lord has delivered him into your hands, right? Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately. And it came to pass afterward, notice this, verse 5, that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. David was upset with himself. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Why? Why would David have this reaction? Because of David's love for God. And what kind of example would that be For David to slay the anointed of the Lord or to do harm to the anointed of the Lord. Once anointed of the Lord, right? When Saul left the cave, David followed after him and he called him. And then David bowed down to Saul in humility. You see, there were a lot of rumors going around that David wanted to kill Saul and take the kingdom. And David was setting it straight that that was not true. He showed Saul the garment and convinced him that he could have harmed him if he wanted, but he didn't do it. You see, friends, his keen spiritual perception and deep love of righteousness prevented David from hating Saul. It prevented him from criticizing him to others. prevented him from attacking him at the first opportunity. David had no need of harboring a a so-called righteous indignation at the treatment he had received from Saul. So far as Saul's attitude toward him was concerned, he could leave that with God because he believed God does all things well. There was a calm confidence in David's soul that God was with him. And in his heart there was pity for Saul. I, I think you know no one would have been happier than David had Saul crucified his selfishness and humbled his heart before God. And in the sincerity of his soul, David probably yearned to have Saul experience the same fellowship with God that he had. He bowed with a heart full of reverence for the office of king and a yearning for the man in that office to be right with God. And that's how we are to behave. The same can be said of the true church's reaction toward the professed church. They do not hate them criticized them unrighteously, attacked them, but would be overjoyed if they crucified their selfishness and humbled themselves before God in true repentance to be right with God. Now, as I close up here, I mean, I could go on and on and on with the, the examples, but you study it for yourselves. You see the parallels. It's remarkable. One last thing here. How did David react to the news that Saul had died at the hands of the enemies of God? Was he jumping for joy? Did he have a big party, big celebration? Look at 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. David gets told about the death of Saul and Jonathan and all of them. Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. David mourned with genuine sorrow, friends. Even though Saul had sought to take his life, David had no malice toward Saul. And this reaction on the part of David is not the natural response of the human heart of man, but it's an indication of the love and pity of God within a person's soul. As a true Israelite, David mourned the death of the king. As a personal friend, he mourned the loss of Jonathan, whom he regarded with deep affection. The loss of life among those whom David regarded as his friends and brethren filled him with the keenest sorrow. Friends, the true church hates sin. It hates death. It mourns the course of the professed church, their former brethren, and because of their love for them, they give the Laodicean message of repentance. The death of those who have rejected Christ does not bring happiness to the hearts of the righteous, but keen sorrow like that of David, like that of God. God. And like I said, I could go on and on and on with parallels we see in these two anointed kings of Israel. But I encourage you to do your own study. You'll find that it is a great example of what our reaction is to be toward a church in sin. If Jesus lives in our heart, friends, we'll do as he did. We'll have compassion. We'll have pity upon our fallen brethren. While we maintain true faith and righteous principles, just as Jesus did. So what do we learn in looking at these two anointed kings and their reactions towards one another? Saul was anointed of God, but he was carnally minded. He disobeyed God and he rebelled. He represents the professed church. David was anointed of God, but he was spiritually minded because he was born again. He obeyed God. He represents the true church. Saul hated and tried to destroy David, Secretly at first, but more and more openly as time went by. The professed church persecutes the true church using the same kind of tactics. David respected the office of Saul as he had been anointed by God. David could have killed Saul, but showed compassion to Saul. The true church shows compassion and makes the Laodicean call to the fallen churches. as they love the once anointed of God. Saul fell further and further away from God, but still professed to be the true king. He eventually sought a witch for counsel instead of the prophet of the Lord. The professed church falls further and further away from God, but proclaims to be the remnant, the apple of God's eye, the ship that's going through to the kingdom. They seek the counsel of the world in doing away with the law of God. The ecumenical movement. David grew in faith and stature as God taught him to fully trust in him to have victory over the enemy. The true church grows stronger in the Lord, reflecting more and more the character of Jesus in victories over sin. Saul destroyed himself with a sword. His last act was to commit self-murder, breaking God's commandment. And he will be resurrected with the wicked. The professed church chooses the mark of the beast and will die in the lake of fire. David mourns the death of Saul and his former brethren. David reigned on the throne till he passed peacefully and he will be resurrected with the righteous. The true church mourns the apostasy of the professed church. They will have victory over the beast and will reign with Christ forever. The parallels are remarkable, friends. They're truly are remarkable it is the parallel between righteousness in David and unrighteousness in Saul in the true church and the professed church and friends I say let our reaction parallel the righteous amen let's pray father in heaven we thank you so very very much for uh, this holy Sabbath day again we thank you for uh, your holy word that teaches us so very very much And Father, we wish to know how we are to react uh, towards a church in sin. We are always to do as Jesus did. We are to stand upon truth. We are to have compassion in our hearts. And Father, help us to do as Jesus would have us to do. And help us to make the call to come to the cross. To give your whole heart to Jesus so that you may be saved, all, before it's too late. Please continue to be with us today. Help us as we study the Word of God that we may be led right and that we may share the truth with others. We thank you so much for Jesus, for hearing this prayer, for we ask it in His name. Amen. Amen and amen.